Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you out of our solar system to explore the science of distant extrasolar worlds. This month, Hugh will diabolically discuss the best way to kill a planet. Hannah will introduce us to transmission spectroscopy, which is a very useful tool in any planetary scientist's inventory, and I'll recap the latest news in exoplanet scientists. Before we get started, though, let's meet the three exocasters. We have Hannah Wakeford, who studies clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets from NASA Goddard in Washington, D.C. We have Andrew Rushby, who analyzes the habitability of Earth-like worlds at NASA Ames in California. And Hugh Osborne hunts for transiting exoplanets from the University of Warwick in the UK. Now Hugh is going to tell us how you can kill a planet. Controversial, I think. Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, so astronomers and the techniques and telescopes that we use aren't perfect, and we often make errors and mistakes, and this this week I'll cover a little bit about how a few of those errors have, have led to planets that um, we thought existed, but we now know no longer do or, or don't exist at all. Um, so you may know at least one exoplanet, and that's Pluto. Uh, so after Mike Brown and co. found dozens of Pluto-like ice balls in the outer solar system, um, Pluto was relegated, of course, to the class of a dwarf planet, following a similar fate, actually, to Ceres about 200 years ago. Um, of course, Pluto and Ceres still exist, though. So there are a few other cases where, on closer inspection, we find planets don't exist after all. And in our own solar system, there's actually one, and that's uh, the hypothetical planet X. So... Uh, Changes in Neptune and Uranus's orbits throughout the 20th century meant that astronomers thought there might be a large, massive planet out in the, in, in the outer solar system. But actually, when ne- Voyager went past Neptune in the 1980s, it managed to measure the mass of Neptune to precision and, and basically kill any sort of theory that planet X would exist. Although, as you might now know, there might well be another planet in the outer solar system from similar sort of techniques. Um, and whether that one will get killed is, is another interesting interesting question. Um, but there are also exoplanets that have come and gone from the ranks of, of uh, known planets. And if you believe Peter van der Kamp, uh, then the first exoplanets were, f- were found well before the 1990s, uh, so well before hot Jupiters, and they were found by Peter van der Kamp. Um, so between the 40s and the 80s, he published uh, many papers um, suggesting that uh, photographic plates of, of numerous stars showed that this, these stars contained exoplanets. Uh, so, so he used this using the technique of astrometry. So this looks at uh, the images of, of, of stars and uh, looks at how the star itself shifts due to the pull of an unseen planetary companion. So he looked at many, many stars, uh, including Barnard's star, which he suggested had two planets around it, um, 61 Sig, which is another very close-by uh, low-mass star, and suggested this had a giant planet around it as well. And Leyland's 21185, another nearby M-dwarf, that he said uh, two Jupiter-sized planets uh, may, may, may exist around. Um, but come the 70s, these claims were beginning to be investigated, and it was found that the photographic plates he used were blurry and sometimes saturated, and often the telescope changed between observations. In fact, in one case, it was completely taken to pieces and re- reassembled, and after that, the images had seemed to shift. And this shift, he, he put 
towards a planet by the 70s we realized uh, wasn't a planet at all and in fact um, in the 90s after the detection of 51 Peg and the first hot Jupiters one of those planet killers themselves uh, George Gatewood decided to get on the in the in on the act of proposing astrometric planets and he said that there were two planets around Leyland 21185 which he had himself ruled out um, in the 70s but subsequent searches with astrometry and also radial velocity so looking at the the to and fro shift of, of the star showed that there these planets were did not exist so that was another case of an astrometric planet that was killed and in fact you might think that that this can be um, pigeonholed to the era of photographic plates and, and, and ancient astronomy as it were but um, even in the modern era there has been a spurious astrometric planet claims so as recently as 2010 the wobbles of the star WB10 were interpreted to be from a six Jupiter mass planet on a about a year's orbit but when we went or when people went to look for this planet in radial velocities they found absolutely nothing so it looks like that planet has been killed as well, but there's still some doubt as to whether such a planet could exist at a lower mass, potentially. Um, and in fact, there has been no confirmed planet detections with astrometry yet, although it looks like Gaia, which is a ultra-precise space telescope, will find thousands of giant planets this way in the next few years, which will be very interesting. But radial velocity detections, which make up more than 500 of the current tally, are not immune from controversy either, so there's a cluster of radial velocity worlds that have been killed or at least are controversial. Um, so one of the most controversial is in the Gliese 581 system. So this was first identified of having a planet in 2005 and then every year a planet was added effectively. So two in 2007, uh, one of which D sat in the habitable zone and then in 2010 there were two more added F and G um, which were only a few Earth masses including G in the habitable zone. But these were quickly called into question as uh, reanalyses of these data seem to rule out both these planets. And then in 2014, another study by Paul Robertson looked at the activity on the star um, and how this might mimic planetary signals. And when he repro reprocessed the data, it completely killed the planet of G, or the signal of G and F, but also surprisingly also for D. Um, so D is the G, GJ 581D is supposedly a habitable, habitable zone super Earth, um, although it looks like that is called into question now. Um, so that leaves confirmed planets in the order of E, B, and C, with no D and no F and G. So it makes it a very confusing planetary system to uh, to study. Other very radial velocity planets that have had controversial or even killed planets uh, include the GJ667C system. So this system was proposed to have up to seven planets, but when it was looked at how these planets might orbit, it seemed like seven planets was enough to destabilize the entire system. And then another analysis by Paul Robertson found that when you look at the activity of the star again, only planets B and C could be picked out of the radial velocities. So it looks like up to five planets have been killed in that system. Although, once again, this is controversial, so it's hard to say. More data may, may rule this out. Uh, Captain Star is another one with a controversial planet. So uh, the same guy, the, the, the planet, killer, planet killer, Paul Robertson, um, seems to have found that the, the, the signal that planet B, so a habitable super-Earth, um, may be overstated and might even be the result of just stellar activity on the star rather than being an actual planet. 
And um, Coro 7D is another radial velocity planet that seems like uh, it may have been just um, stellar noise. And then the true daddy of the planet killers is um, a paper by Vinesh Rajpool from last year. And this looked at Alpha Centauri BB, so the closest exoplanet to Earth, or as was. Um, this was found in uh, 2012 and on a three-day period um, with a signal only 0.5 metres per second. So this was far and, ab far and above the lowest signal we'd ever been able to tease from a star. Um, but after that initial paper by uh, Xavier de Musk, many, many reanalysis of the same data couldn't find the planet. And then this recent paper showed that um, even with a planet-free synthetic data, when they did the re, uh, reduction that the original team did, a planet appeared from the data at exactly the 3.24 day period that the original planet was found to be. So now it seems that um, by removing the stellar rotation from that data, they boosted the signal of a spurious um, sinusoid and basically said that this was a planet. And even the original author of the detection paper now admits that Alpha Centauri BB has bitten the interstellar dust. It is no more. It is an exoplanet. Um, so there's a lot of radial velocity planets in that list, but there's also a few transiting planets. So just this month, actually, uh, EPIC 2017, which was validated in 2015 as, as a planet by Monte L, was shown to be actually 80 Jupiter masses and a brown dwarf rather than a planet. Um, and another transiting planet in the survey that I walk for work for, WASP, which is called WASP-9b, uh, looked like a planet. It was had the same depth transit as a planet. When we looked at the, the star in, our, in radial velocity, it gave a planetary mass, and we even gave it a number. This is how confident we were that it was a planet. And then it turned out that it was a hierarchical triple system. So there was a binary star just hiding behind the, the star that we thought had a planet. And this serendipitously gave both a planet-like transit and a planet-like radial velocity on follow-up. Um, and there's a few more confirmed in hyphen uh, transiting exoplanets that may fall foul to the same problem in the next couple of years, but I won't tell you which just yet. Um, and in fact, there's a there's a 200 planets listed as unconfirmed or controversial or retracted on uh, exoplanet.eu. So this all goes to show that it's, it can be very hard to tease a planetary signal from the data, and, and, and we do sometimes get it wrong, but it looks like, at least unlike Peter van der Kamp in the, in the 40s and 50s, we are prepared to admit when we make these mistakes. Thank you, Hugh. Uh, it's really interesting that you're talking about that. It, it really seems to come down to uh, what we understand as creating these false positives, as you say, but also the analysis methods that we're using and, and the way in which we are actually making the measurements between different telescopes and different methods, which seems to be really important. Yeah, that's right. I think um, a lot of the radial velocity trouble comes when uh, the the teams look at data from from both or multiple telescopes, and it just adds this uncertainty and this extra systematics, as we call it, and that can manifest itself as as planets, as as weird looking signals, as as, and it's very hard to model that because we can't we don't really know what the differences between these instruments are until we look at this data. So, um, so that's definitely one of the one of the big reasons that um, that we that we do find and, and need to kill these these false exoplanets. 
So as we discover more planets in the future, um, are we likely to find that we end up killing a lot more of them proportionately or that we get better at figuring out which ones might not actually be real? Well, the way I see it, actually, recently we've uh, we've moved from a a sort of regime where we had to confirm every single planet. So when we were looking at hot Jupiters, before we could call a hot Jupiter a hot Jupiter, we had to uh, study it with radial velocities. But now we're moving with Kepler and um, with probably with TESS as well. We're moving to a regime where we can no longer do those measurements. We don't have enough time or the the telescopes we have aren't sensitive enough. So we um, sweepingly confirm a large amount of planets. And the majority of them are, are likely to be planets. But actually, some of those in that large list, like even in the um, 1,200 planets we heard from Kepler last night, may well be false positives, binary stars or whatever it is, masquerading as planets. And it's going to be harder and harder with the amount of planets that we have to added to this growing list uh, to actually rule out some of those as false. And now we have Hannah who's going to discuss this month's concept which is transmission spectroscopy. So can you tell us a little bit more about this? Thank you Hugh. Yeah so I wanted to talk a little bit about a a method that we use to characterize the atmospheres of these planets that are being found. Now the term that we use for this is called transmission spectroscopy and that just uh, is simply describing the light that we're seeing that has shone through that planet's atmosphere. Now it's called transmission because it's being essentially transmitted through the atmosphere of the planet before it reaches us and we call it spectroscopy is because we're looking over multiple colours, multiple wavelengths, so we're getting a spectrum of that atmosphere. Now, what you would classically see it as, actually, is an absorption spectrum. So different molecules in the atmosphere, uh, different elements, have very characteristic signatures or fingerprints where they block light, they absorb it. So different things like water in the Earth's atmosphere is actually blocking some of the star's light. So the sun's light is actually being blocked and absorbed by the water in our own atmosphere. And that's actually, that happens at very characteristic, very specific wavelengths. And what we're able to do when we're looking at other planets is see these fingerprints from different molecules. So the way that we do that is through the transit technique. So the technique that is being used a lot uh, by the Kepler mission, by WASP, by which will be used by TESS, to find planets as they pass in front of their star and block out a certain amount of their light from the star... Using that method, we can also see not only the amount of light being blocked out by the bulk planet, but we can also see some of that starlight is shining through the atmosphere of that planet before it reaches us. So you get this general amount of light being blocked by the, the size of the planet. And if it's got a gassy envelope around it, so if it's got any gas in the atmosphere, some of that starlight is going to pass through that gas before it reaches us. Now, depending on what that gas around that planet is made out of, it will block light at different wavelengths. So what we can do is if we measure the transit of a planet as it passes in front of its star at different wavelengths, we can build up a picture of how much light is passing through the atmosphere at these different, different wavelengths. 
Now, this appears essentially like the size of the planet is changing as we measure the different wavelengths. So as we measure it in the red, it might be larger than if we measured it in the blue. And that tells us a little bit about what's in the atmosphere. So for these large Jupiter-sized planets, we expect them to have very, very extended hydrogen-helium atmospheres. We expect that atmosphere to contain a considerable amount of water vapour as well. And using this transmission spectroscopy, by viewing that starlight that shone through the atmosphere and seeing how the size of the planet, the amount of starlight the planet is blocking or absorbing, at different wavelengths, we can build up this fingerprint structure of that planet's atmosphere. And we've actually been able to detect the presence of water vapour high up in the atmosphere of a number of these hot Jupiter planets, where that water is absorbing the light and making it appear bigger in the infrared and smaller at different wavelengths where there's the water signature disappears again. So it's a really interesting technique to get the actual constituents, what is making up, what is in the atmospheres of these planets. And it's actually one of the only ways that we can measure exactly what the composition of the upper atmospheres of these planets is made out of. Now, there's lots of different things that can be in the atmospheres of these planets that are showed their different fingerprints at very different wavelengths. So I'm just going to go through a few of them now, which are really, really interesting to us. And I've already mentioned one of them, which is this water. Water has lots and lots of fingerprints that go all the way through the near infrared, all the way out into the infrared. Now, that's just beyond the red part of what our eyes can see. And that's actually happening in our own atmosphere here on Earth. It, the water vapour in our atmosphere is blocking out small portions of the infrared light which is why when you do observing from the ground, there are specific bands in the atmosphere, bands in wavelength, where we can't actually make very good observations because the water vapour will absorb all of the light from the stars, the galaxies, the nebulas, uh, and these transiting planets that we want to observe. So the water vapour in our own atmosphere can be a bit of a pain for ground-based observers because we have to basically ignore those regions of wavelength space. So to look for water, we've actually been using the Hubble Space Telescope to do this because we need to be outside of this water vapour in the Earth's atmosphere, which has been a lot of fun. Now, there are lots of other things that can exist in these planets' atmospheres, and that depends on the temperature. So at very, very high temperatures, you would expect everything to be in the gas phase, but you will be dominated by CO, so carbon monoxide, rather than cooler species like methane. And also, because everything's in the vapour phase, you would expect these stronger signatures, something that has a really strong fingerprint, will overwhelm the fingerprints of other molecules which won't show up very well. And one of these in the optical, so in the wavelengths that our eyes can see, is a titanium oxide and vanadium oxide. So these heavy metal oxides will be gases in the atmospheres uh, of very, very hot planets. And they have a very, very strong fingerprint in the optical where they would block lots of light. So the planet will appear much, much bigger at these wavelengths than if we looked at them in the infrared. So we can try and determine if these molecules are in the atmosphere. And then, as I said, as we get colder, 
methane starts to take over. And that has very characteristic signatures in the 3.3 micron range. So if we're looking at the atmosphere at 3.3 microns, which James Webb will do for us for a number of these smaller, colder planets, then we should be expecting to see signatures from methane in the atmosphere, much like some of the cooler planets in our and moons, actually, in our outer solar system, where we see signatures of methane in the atmosphere because they're much cooler. Uh, and another really, really interesting thing is that it's not just the temperature that we need to care about when we're doing transmission spectroscopy, because the temperature tells you what kind of molecules you would expect to see. But the gravity of the planet becomes very, very important here, because that defines how much uh, the atmosphere is extended. So imagine if you um, have a very, very high gravity planet, it's going to pull all of the atmosphere towards you. All of that gas is going to be pulled down a lot more than if you had a planet with very, very low gravity, which would extend the atmosphere a lot more. And that means that we're looking for planets with very big signatures in their atmosphere, which will be uh, with very low gravities and very high temperatures make it much easier for us to do transmission spectroscopy. So we can do this really easily for low gravity and high temperature planets, uh, which we've been doing so far. But as our instruments get better and better, we can start to measure these smaller uh, atmospheres like the Earth's, which has a very, very thin atmosphere, actually, in comparison to something like Jupiter that we're observing. So transmission spectroscopy is a brilliant technique that we can use that we can actually get what these atmospheres are made of. And that's so important for our understanding of how they formed, where they formed, and whether or not we're unique. So maybe in the future, these different things that uh, Andrew was explaining a couple of podcasts ago about biosignatures will be something that we're looking for. And transmission spectroscopy is the way that we're going to be doing that. Thanks, Hannah. That was absolutely fascinating. And I mean, I, this method itself can can reveal so much about what's going on in the atmosphere at the moment. But it also tells us a little bit maybe about the processes that would have been going on on the planet that produced that particular uh, signature, right? So what, what's really interesting is that the looking at the, the atmosphere, we're looking very high up in the atmosphere. So we're actually seeing if something can be transported higher up in the atmosphere or if something is much lower down. So we can see signatures of what happened potentially in the past by what's still there. So that's one of the ways that we're trying to work out how these, these hot Jupiters got to where they are, which is really important. We don't know how they formed in the first place. And if we're seeing certain things in the atmosphere, then we can see uh, if we can work out where they formed in the first place. Now, there are things in a disk called ice lines where you freeze out certain materials. So if they formed past one of these lines, then it would have different uh, things in its atmosphere than if it formed with inside them. And that will tell you something about the process that they went through, where they came from in their disk. So there's different things that if we're measuring them or if we're not measuring them are really important. So actually saying, actually, we didn't find any water in this atmosphere is just as important as going, we found lots of water vapour present in the atmosphere of this planet. So are clouds and haze, are they a menace to transmission spectroscopy or are they a blessing? Are they interesting to study on their own? 
That's a fantastic question. So what actually happens with if you have a cloud in the atmosphere? Now, if you live anywhere in on this beautiful planet which gets cloudy, you know that it blocks a lot of light. It becomes essentially opaque. Now, if these appear in a planet's atmosphere, that's what's happening, where it becomes essentially opaque and it blocks the light. So if there is water in this atmosphere, but there's a cloud then we're not going to be able to see this full signature of the water because the cloud is going to block more light than the water is going to allow us to see the the signatures for. Uh, and it will depend on the size of the particles in that cloud as to how it blocks the light. So if you've got very small particles, it scatters the light in a very different way than if you've got very large particles. And that changes the way that uh, we see this effect on, on the absorption signatures of other molecules, other gases in the atmosphere. So solid or liquid particles can have a really big effect um, on the transmission spect spectrum. But what I think is, I think it's a, very, it's a very complicated, just really fascinating way that they have this effect. It means that we can work out what size particles the clouds are made of uh, and estimate essentially how what the extent of these clouds are which can tell us a little bit about the vertical processes. You could, it's, if it's very, very large particles blocking the light, then it means that this planet is able to lift and maintain large particles very high up in the atmosphere. So that tells you something about the dynamics itself. But also different, what we're seeing, what we're finding actually, so Hugh led leading question there, this is something that's very central to the studies that I do. Um, what we can see is that different materials, so if the cloud is made of different materials, they will have their own absorption signatures. So they will have their own uh, little fingerprints that we can observe to see what these clouds are actually made of. Now, those seem to happen much more in the infrared where we don't have any measurements yet. But with James Webb, we might be able to get to these wavelengths where we see what materials are actually making up the clouds rather than just what kind of uh, particle sizes there are in these clouds. Now, Andrew is going to talk about this month's exoplanet news. Thanks, Hannah. So in the news this month, uh, we've got a few noteworthy planetary discoveries and something we don't get to talk much about on the show, the impending arrival of a Terran spacecraft at a giant planet. So first up, I'm going to talk a little bit about Kepler-1647b. Uh, so this was recently in, in the news, you might have seen it around. It's a 4.4 a 4 billion year old Jupiter-sized world. Uh, it's about 3,700 light years away from the Earth. And this planet's interesting because it orbits two stars. So it's what's known as a circumbinary planet, and it completes that orbit in about three years, so just over 1,100 days. Now, the press release from San Diego State, where the authors uh, who, who, who authored this, uh, this paper um, originate from, claim that the planet is in the habitable zone, uh, which is, it is an interesting claim, and it's one that often features in press releases, but this is a Jupiter-sized planet. So we're talking about even more of a hefty dose of salt than I normally recommend, um, and any, I think, putative claims of habitability would refer to uh, unknown moons that might be orbiting the planets, of which we haven't discovered any yet. Um, but overall, I mean, I think this is a fascinating world, a, a gas giant in a complex circumbinary orbit uh, with, you know, a complex radiative and radiation environment. Very cool stuff. Um, also in the news this month is uh, CVSO30, 
system. So this is um, uh, a planetary system that was initially discovered by a Venezuelan astronomical survey um, back in 2012, uh, a single planet CVSO30b was discovered around around this very young star, to T Tauri star, so very young, pre-main sequence, about 1,200 light years away from Earth. Now, the interesting thing, uh, or the, the interesting development, is that new direct imaging campaign using data from the European um, Southern Observatory Very Large Telescope in Chile, the Keck Observatory in Hawaii, and the Cala Alto Observatory in Spain has revealed a potential second planet in the system, known as CVSO30C. Um, and if it's confirmed, this will be the first system with a close-in transit detection from 2012 and a distant direct imaged world, which I think makes it quite fascinating. Um, furthermore, uh, CVSO30C uh, orbits its star at 660 AU in a potential 27,000 year orbital period, uh, which is essentially why it was was able to be discovered using direct imaging because of this massive separation. Um, but interestingly, the system is only about 2.5 million years old, which according to many, if not most models of uh, stellar system formation makes this architecture kind of weird uh, and maybe suggests a possible interaction in the past between these, these two planets. But I think more data will be required before we can truly speculate on that. So finally, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, HATS-18 system. So this is a there's a planet that's been discovered in this in the system about twice the size of Jupiter that orbits uh, its star in less than a day and because it's it's so close in and, and rather massive it's causing this sun-like star to spin faster than be expected which uh, you know kind of results from that strong tidal coupling and produces a significant spin up. So according to a paper led by Princeton-based astronomer Kaolan Penev, which is currently on the archive, this is an excellent system for testing and investigating a huge number of star-planet interactions, including gravitational, magnetic, radiative, um, as well as look really, really getting a better handle on planet formation and migration theories, because again, this is a, this is a planet that's interacting with its star in, in a kind of unusual way. And uh, the final news item is a bit of a preview, actually, um, for... Uh, NASA's Juno spacecraft, which arrives at Jupiter on the 4th of July, after a long five-year voyage through interplanetary space. Um, so this is much more local than we're used to dealing with uh, on this on this plan on this show, anyway. Um, currently, only 5.5 astronomical units from Earth, uh, as opposed to the the light-year distances we're normally discussing. However, I think it's important to mention Juno because a better understanding of our our local friendly gas giant is is vitally important for trying to characterize and understand the massive exoplanets that we've talked about in the show today and also in the past, um, and certainly for those that we discover in the future. We found a great number of them already, and we expect to find more as we go on. Um, and particularly, I think they want to look at the migration of these large planets and see how their interaction with other worlds in the, in the stellar system has is, is, is really shaped their composition. Juno will be able to, to figure this out, maybe using... Um, uh, or analysing different isotopic ratios in Jupiter's atmosphere to figure out whether it formed further away originally. Again, touching on um, some of the theory that Hannah talked about earlier with trans transmission spectroscopy. Um, so, yeah, that's about it for the news for this month. Uh, another exciting one in exoplanet science. Thank you. That did, yeah, it's been interesting again. See, we... I... We didn't think we could beat last uh, last podcast news, but this is this is pretty good. We got another couple of planets that are very very interesting. I mean, 
are individual planet detections still something that is uh, very, very important? Or do you, do you think that mass planet observations are the way that we should be going? Well, if we're talking quantity over quality, uh, I, th- I think that's the the important thing to remember. I mean, last last uh, podcast's um, amazing announcement of, of you know twelve hundred planets gave us all something to think about. But when we have these unusual planetary situations, like the ones I've tried to highlight this time round, I think that's still still worth discussing because they're they're still pushing out our envelope of understanding a little bit more, and hopefully they're their single detection would result in a disproportionate amount of greater understanding for the other planets that we've already discovered. Now it's time for Hannah to add another remarkable world to our ragtag family of adopted exoplanet oddities. Who's joining the party this month, Hannah? Uh, This month I thought I would pick one of these hot Jupiters that we've been talking about so much uh, because they they form such a great basis uh, for exoplanet studies. So I have selected WASP-17b as the adopted planet, this podcast. And the reason that I have selected it is because it has a number of very interesting characteristics that we've kind of already covered in the podcast so far. So one of the first ones of those is that it is one of these backwards rolling planets. It's in a retrograde orbit. So as Hugh discussed uh, in last time's podcast... It is moving around its star backwards relative to the rotation of its host star. So the host star is rotating one direction and it is actually traveling in the opposite direction. So something clearly happened in this system to make that occur. What we are not entirely sure. So that's really one of the the first interesting points about this planet. Um, Another thing that's that's really cool about this planet is that it's nearly two times the size of Jupiter. It has a radius nearly twice that of Jupiter, which is the largest planet in our solar system and 11 times the size of the Earth already. So this is about 22 times the size of the Earth, which is very, very big. Um, but also at the same time, it has a mass which is only half of that of Jupiter. So it's incredibly incredibly puffy. So it's one of the lowest density planets that has been discovered. And it's essentially the same density as a foam coffee cup. So that's that's a very strange planet in itself. It's a very, very low density and it's going backwards. So there's two things which are crazy about this planet. Uh, another thing which is really interesting is that it orbits a star which has a low metallicity. Now, that means that it has a lower number of heavy elements in the star itself compared to our sun. Now, that's strange because that suggests that the the gas that this star formed from and the disk, therefore, that this planet potentially formed from uh, had less material uh, available in it. So forming a hot Jupiter, a very, very large planet, Uh, from a low metallicity uh, area, gas, uh, dust, whatever, uh, is slightly harder to do uh, from our understanding so far. So that's another really strange thing about the system, which is why I like WAS-17 so much. It's always throwing up really interesting things. Uh, And to bring it back to some of the stuff that I do uh, with transmission spectroscopy, we've actually measured uh, the transmission spectrum uh, of the atmosphere of WAS-17. 
And from the optical, we are measuring sodium, uh, atomic sodium gas in the atmosphere, which is what we would expect to be seeing in the optical. And then we've actually got a detection of water in the atmosphere. And this is a this is a nice little part of my PhD thesis was detecting water vapor in the upper atmosphere of WAF 17b. And we actually detect it to a 90% amplitude of what we would expect. So if you've got a full 100% amplitude uh, water feature, so this fingerprint, if we're seeing the entire fingerprint, then that's a really good detection of water. We're seeing about 90% of the fingerprint of water, which is fantastic uh, measurement for a world which is so distant. So that was one of my my favorite ones to look at because it was so interesting in so many different respects. Um, and it's also very, very hot, which means that this low density combined with this high temperature uh, means that it's got a very low gravity and therefore the atmosphere is incredibly extended, which made detecting the water to such a high degree uh, much more easy. Uh, and also from the measurements that we were able to determine that it doesn't actually have these these clouds sitting in the atmosphere at, at the uh, altitudes that we were observing it. So at the altitudes in the atmosphere where we were making our measurements, we weren't seeing any evidence for these these clouds getting in the way and, and blocking out uh, that light in a different way. So that was a that was a nice uh, planet to be looking at and studying. Fascinating, Hannah. Um, and I was just wondering, to what degree do you think all these kind of weird aspects of this planet are are related? It's 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 foaminess and the fact that it's going backwards and the fact that it's around this low metallicity star. Do you think those are all um, you know part of the same puzzle or just coincident? I mean, it certainly could be. Um, we don't know how this planet got to where it is. So the thing about hot Jupiters is they're so close to their stars, it's unlikely that they formed where we're seeing them. So it could have formed further out in the disk. And if the if the disk uh, around the star had a, a very different uh, amount of heavy elements, it could suggest that that's the reason why it's so much uh, lower mass than we would expect. Um, the formation of this like puffy planet, so this really low density, is still something that's kind of up for debate. We're not entirely certain what it, these key mechanisms are to make something really puffy. Um, so that is really interesting in itself. But to be honest, the, the formation, so where it formed, could also tell us a little bit about why it's going backwards. So could this star actually have captured the planet? which means it's going backwards? Um, or did something happen in this system which kind of knocked the planets around a little bit, um, threw them out of whack, and then it kind of came back um, into this circular orbit that we're seeing it? So all of these things could be related to each other. Um, but that's a lot. The, the problem with that is that's a lot of parameters. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, for all the talk that we that we have on this podcast about Earth-sized planets and uh, interesting sort of small worlds, you really can't beat a hot Jupiter for the amount of information we know about that planet, you know. Uh, so I think it's good that we've adopted one this week. Yep, I'm a little biased, but yeah. Aren't we all? Well, that's it for another fascinating exoplanet-filled month. 
tune in next time for more extrasolar excitement, news, views and concepts from the very distant edge of planetary science, where Hannah will be taking us on a tour of our own, own solar system planets, which I can't believe we've neglected to this degree. Um, I'll explore the mass-radius relationship for exoplanets and adopt another planet, and he will give us the news, which will also hopefully include some updates on the arrival of Juno to Jupiter. For now, though, it's uh, it's goodbye from me, Hannah and Hugh, uh, but to remember to keep looking up and also to keep checking out our website and social media accounts. So we're at exocast.org, we're on Twitter at at exo underscore cast, and on Facebook at exocast. Thank you, and uh, tune in next time. Exocast.